Well, typically we're talking fishing, but every now and then throughout the course of the summer, we have to talk about something else, and today is one of those days. It's Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, as we say goodbye to a great guy, John Williams, the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager. He joins Henry Drews in the retired category. We'll talk with him next. Welcome to Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, sponsored by Visit Bemidji. We talked to Henry Drews last week, and we have to have the same kind of interview this week with the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager, John Williams. On the heels of Henry Drews, you're also retiring about the same time. Yeah, Henry beats me by one day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so big change to the Northwest office in short order. It'd be a big change. Uh on the good side, you know, are uh, people that at least be following behind us, Blaine Klimek for myself and Ted uh, Sledge for Henry. Excellent people, well qualified to, to step in these shoes. So, um, By the time this airs, you will have actually retired. So this probably will air um, a couple days after you retire, just so mm-hmm. you know. But um, how did you make your way uh, to Bemidji, Minnesota, the Northwest Regional's Wildlife Manager? Well, that's a little bit of a story. Yeah. Um, so I grew up like most people of my age in this organization, hunting and fishing, and decided, man, that would be a good job to have. And one day when I was at a wildlife management area in Indiana, I saw somebody my age pulling up boats on the shore. And I asked him, I said, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm putting pulling boats on the shore. and I don't want to drift away. And I said, you work here? Yeah. And I thought, well, I could do that, too. <laughs> And so I applied down there, and I worked for the Indiana DNR for about a dozen years. And then the opportunity came up here with God's blessing, in my opinion. And uh, we moved our family up to Thief Lake in 1991. We were there for about five years. And then uh, in um, 1996, we were uh, given the position of uh, area supervisor at Thief River Falls. And then in 2006, the opportunity came open to be at the region so I've been there ever since, so about 30 years in Minnesota. Uh, it's been an awesome journey. Uh, I have to say I've, I've felt really blessed to have been in this state, you know, starting off in Indiana, which was a good gig down there. I still miss the trees more than anything else. But uh, it has been a, a privilege for me to come up here and work in this state and work for the Department of Natural Resources. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, it's given my family a house and a home. Who could ask for more? Yeah. Well, you said hunting and fishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you ended up on the hunting side. Um, what kind of spurred you that way? Ah, oh, my parents. No. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when we were kids and you'd always go in the hardware stores about Easter and you'd see ducks and chicks to, for sale? Yeah. Remember those days? Oh, yes. Well, my parents always got me a pair of ducks. And uh, so I have always had a fondness for ducks ever since. Okay. I've had pets all the time like that. and. It just got to be something that was a real love of mine and uh, decided, you know, I'd really like to be in the field of, of wildlife biology, uh, quote, a duck biologist. <laughs> now, I never made the duck biologist route, uh, became more of a practitioner in operations, but uh, 
it, it was that influence of my parents, I think, that really pushed me for this. My mom grew up on a farm. Uh, Dad, not so much, but we would go out mushroom hunting, or in the spring we would go wildflower looking. And I really learned a lot from that and gained an appreciation of it. And then when I was old enough to begin hunting and fishing, well, that uh, didn't take much to get hooked on that. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about when when you first started. You you're uh, probably more boots on the ground, um, out in the field type of thing than than you do as a, as the reg, uh, Northwest Regional Manager. Absolutely, uh, two very distinctly different positions. Uh, boots on the ground is is where the work gets done, and uh, that is probably the, some of the most enjoyable type work. Not that the region isn't. But it's just, it's just a different type of work. Uh, it's more administrative, I would say. You work with budgets a lot. You work with difficulties with uh, solving fault problems that develop in the field. Um, so uh, very different, but um, the field is where you find the most interesting stories. Yeah, I'm sure. Do you have any good ones? Kevin, I got several. Uh, <laughs> you know, the one that uh, it seems like for me the most most interesting stories I have is with moose. Uh, moving up to Thief Lake in 1991, there was still a very good moose population in the northwest there. But it was on the decline, and we were doing a lot of studies to find out what was going on. Somewhere around when I went to Thief River Falls in 2006, or uh, 1996, um, I was getting about five to six calls a year of sick moose, and ultimately I would have to go and dispatch them. They were that sick. So one of the days came by, you'd always get this call either 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, on some highway that there's a moose, you know, walking circles out there, or um, Friday afternoon, you know, about 2 o'clock. And sure enough, I got one of those calls. And in this case, there was a person that uh, said that he had put out some fencing uh, and a moose had run into the barbed wire fencing. He was tangled up in it. Well, I thought, well, in that case, you know, I didn't want to waste a moose. And, you know, this sounded like a healthy moose that for all practical purposes, you know, maybe it could just be released. So I thought, well, perhaps we could get a, a vet out there. Maybe we could tranquilize the moose. Let's just see what we got. So I went out there with the state truck. <clears throat> it was on a beach ridge and uh, drove out there and, and looked in the, the far distance for this moose. Couldn't, didn't find anything. Finally, I had to crawl up on the top of the truck, and I could actually see there was this moose. And it did appear that there was some wire in his antlers. So um decided that I would gently coax the moose out. Uh, of the field so I could get a better look and estimate it. Tied, cut the wire, tied it to the uh, the hitch on the truck, and slowly drug this moose out toward the edge of a field. He was in a brushland area on this pasture area. Had to. It was long enough uh, that I had to cut the wire again and then re- reset it at about 30, about 30 yards or so of wire from the second cut. Got him out to within about 15 feet of the edge of that, and boy, the moose was just in tough shape. Just wire all over his head uh, through the upper part of his chest and everything you really could tell he's in tough shape so I thought well let's let's just see if we can maybe get somebody out here and tranquilize it and snip the wire off of it and let him loose let him loose in the meantime the landowner who called me came out there and he drove past the truck and and it was we were both sitting there the moose by this time had walked to the edge of the field and um, the moose was not in a position where I could read the body language very well the ears were pinned back from the wire. The bell was all clobbed up and everything like that, and you really just couldn't tell much about them. So as we were talking, probably, I would say maybe 20 feet away from this thing, he bolted at us. 
and the landowner had a six-foot lead on me. And you've heard that story about the tennis shoes and stuff. Well, mm-hmm. I can vividly remember just making my legs move as fast as they can. They felt like lead. <laughs> and I, I kid you not, when um, when it was just about the time I figured a moose had one more step and he would knock me down because he was, we were running like crazy. It didn't take very long for him to catch up with me. And about the time I figured I'd had it, um, I heard this twang behind me. And I looked over my shoulder and this moose's head had jerked back. The truck was shaking like crazy because he was tied to that barbed wire. <laughs> and and um, uh, fortunately, was saved by the leash limit of that barbed wire. It was evident to me that moose was mad, and it was something you didn't want to miss with. And I didn't want to have a vet come out there and, and have to deal with a situation like that to administer some you know, anesthetic like that. So at any rate, um, I said, I asked the landowner, because obviously my truck wasn't going to be a move, I said, could you take me to my house, and then I will dispatch the moose. We needed to get a rifle to do so. And so remember I said the truck drove past us? Yeah. Well, uh, as we got in his truck, and we were going on the the lee side of the ridge, which is a wet area of of the beach ridge up there, uh, you know, we were moving, but it was a little bit slick. The moose charged the truck, and... I'm on the driver's side, and the the moose is coming right at me. And I told this guy, I said, you better punch it. And he punched it. And, of course, it's just spinning, and we're just moving and everything else. I started to crawl over this guy's lap. And about about seven feet from the truck, that lease limit hit that moose one more time. <laughs> I figured that, you know, we were going to get slammed by that moose. And he would if it wouldn't have been for that wire. But um, I got to thinking, how am I going to explain this if that truck gets all beat up by this moose? <laughs> you, did, you did what? <laughs> so that's one of my favorite stories. Um, oh. If you ever get a chance to interview Scott Laudenslager out of Red Lake, we've got more moose stories that you either wouldn't believe or else you'd have to laugh at them pretty hard. But wow. uh, the, during that time in the Northwest when those moose were declining, we really worked with them hard to try to figure out what was going on if if there was anything we could do about it and of course we tried to salvage what we could and today you know over, over a population of probably somewhere between six and seven thousand when i came in 1991 it probably is less than 300 or so today mm. yeah i know it's uh, very rare to see a moose anymore um what what has caused that do we, do we know well we know there were several factors that were really that were really hitting them. Winter tick, when I was up there in, in 91, was the big one. You would find a moose in the wintertime just full of ticks. And um, they, like anybody else would, the itches, and they would nip at the tick with their thing, and they would basically could defer themselves. So you got a naked moose running around out there that that couldn't really, you know, survive the winter very good. So that was one thing. Another thing was um, the the flukes up there the parasite flutes that normally go into the liver of a moose, they would chew a liver to pieces. And uh, when you do a necropsy on the moose, you just find that their liver is is missed up. One of the first moose I had to dispatch, uh, I didn't recognize it at the time, didn't know it at the time, had pneumonia. And it's just like, what caused that? And we found out later on that once the liver was mostly gone, these flukes would actually migrate and go into the lungs. And, of course, once you have that, you know, it's a prime place for pneumonia to come up. Yeah. So... So between that and everything else, they seem to be secondary causes. And what we began to really focus on was the the change in climate in, in Minnesota and just how cold things were or how warm things were. 
And things have been warming up through the 90s and early 2000s to the point where, you know, there's always a limit to wildlife where it, where it can or can't survive. Mm-hmm. And that line gets fuzzy, you know, of course. But what we began to find, what we began to think about was that things had just become a little bit too warm for moose to be able to survive in, in this area of the state. And, you know, we found that even in Canada going upwards, they were having that same problem. The northeast part of the state was in pretty good shape until recently. Mm. And again, is it, you know, hotter temperatures, climate change, whatever it might be, um, that's just, that just seems to be a factor that is the primary factor, which, like us, if uh, we get chilled, if we get too stressed or anything, we're more vulnerable to codes and colds and things like that. And uh, we think that's probably the primary cause where these secondary things can come in and get the moose. My final conversation with John Williams, at least in his role as the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager. We did this before his retirement. He is now retired. We'll continue the conversation next. This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Hi, this is Dick Beardsley with Dick Beardsley Fishing Guide Service. Are you looking to plan a fishing trip? Look no further as Bemidji, Minnesota is your year-round destination for walleyes, pike, muskie, bass, perch, crappie, panfish, and more. With over 400 fishing lakes within a 25-mile radius of Bemidji, come take a cast of becoming a fishing legend. While you're on your fishing adventure, come take a picture with the historic Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox. Discover the first city on the Mississippi... Bemidji, one step further. You're listening to Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. John Williams is my guest. Talked to him last week right before his retirement. He's He was the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager. Well, certainly, you know, one of the things that we've seen in the last couple of years, speaking of changing climate and, and, and migrations northward, um, Hearing lots of reports of cardinals in the Bemidji area. Um, there, there were never cardinals here before. That's true. Um, interesting how how that how that uh, seems to be making a change. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I I'm assuming I can think of a couple off the top of my head that that you might want to brag about that that you were part of uh, some major projects. Uh, Trumpeter Swan is a big one, uh, and and wild turkey in our neck of the woods is another great project that has been truly successful. Who would have believed that? Yeah. You know, in 91, it was, it was stated that we believe that, that the DNR had stated that we believe at 14, the 14-inch snow line, which was consistent in those days, that turkeys wouldn't be able to survive that because they couldn't scratch down and get, you know, food and stuff like that. Well, that turned out to be wrong. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've got turkeys in Canada from our, re- our releases in, 90s, in uh, 2006, um, all the way up to Thief River Falls and Rosa River and, and all of that. So, yeah, who would have thought that that would have been a, a, a thing? And uh, the thing, I guess, I, I really struck me this year, um, you walk into L&M Fleet here in Bemidji and, and get past that first aisle, and what do you see? Here's that, here's that whole display of nothing but things you can use for turkey hunting. And you think about that, you made a difference. You made a difference to the economy. You made a difference to people's uh, enjoyment of recreation. All of that type of stuff, just from that one little thing that originally we thought couldn't be done. And uh, and people love turkey hunting. They absolutely love it. Yep, they do. It's a, it's a fun sport. I, you know, I think the, one of the reasons it's so likable is because it happens when traditional hunting seasons just aren't around. 
mm-hmm. you know it's in that april that april may time frame and you know fishing doesn't get started usually until what first week or mother's day on may you know um so it's just a unique opportunity in time and it's also a time that you know gets people out in the woods to enjoy some of the things i talked about earlier which is wildflowers and mushrooms and some of the good things in the spring you can see from migration yeah yeah and, and then trumpeter swans just a, a lovely bird to see on the waters again it is um interesting about trumpeter swans they're pretty possessive of their their habitat and they'll run geese off too <laughs> so you, that makes some people happy <laughs> it does make some people happy notably golf courses oh yeah sure yeah or or people with beaches oh yeah yeah <laughs> so so you do find you know some interest in that like that but uh yeah i uh um the, the swan has just been just a fascinating story like that and it just seems that the the population of swans in minnesota is just exponentially growing these days so you said something that struck me uh, a little bit ago when we were talking about the turkeys you said that proved to be wrong when you're dealing with science and these types of things you, you got to kind of be prepared to be wrong occasionally to, to to figure out what what to do right right absolutely yeah that's that's the, one of the most important things i think that uh you have to be able to do that. You know, we have a research unit that, that basically studies some of those type of things, what you can or can't do, and you, you work on a hypothesis. But the field staff have to do the very same thing. How do they apply certain knowledge or what actually works? One of the things that uh, was pretty popular in the early 2000s was these mallard nest ne- nesting structures. Basically, is a, a tube uh, about 12 inches in diameter made out of chicken wire that was about two, three foot long. And the southern part of the state found them to be very useful. They would put them up around wetlands, and they'd have mallards or mergansers or other birds using them for nests. And I thought, well, man, with that kind of success, I'll put some up on Elm Lake and Eckville. We put out about 25 of those structures up there. They weren't used at all. Hmm. And I thought, what in the world makes a difference? Why would they be so used in the south and not in the north? Then it finally hit me. Elm Lake and Eckville and Agassiz have plenty of nesting habitat. They don't need to have mallard nesting structures in there. The southern part of the state, they have those wetlands which are very confined, usually surrounded by ag fields, where nesting is limited and the birds would use it. So just an example of, of uh, you know, something you find out. Initially you think one thing and you find out something different. Uh, did a few things with... Um, wood duck boxes too and one of the things that was interesting that the crookston crew found out uh, back in the 90s was that while we didn't think there would be much for fisher in the in the prairie area when terry wolf was uh looking at a wood duck box he opened it up and there was a fisher staring him in the eye mm-hmm. and that's uh that's not exactly a moment that you want to savor <laughs> but uh, it did show that the fisher were coming out there and, and using those structures so uh, very interesting some of the things you can do and you know it, it's also very interesting on on the way some people um, view wildlife from that standpoint um, give another story here that um, is something that you find from time to time uh, there was a lady that called me up one time and and was very concerned about a bird um, that was killing her songbirds and you know, I thought, well, tell me about this, where you're at and everything else. And she explained where where she was living and stuff like that. And I knew in that particular area there was a merlin that was there. Uh, the other name for that was a pigeon hawk. But think of a small peregrine falcon. And they're, they're birds that adequately uh, live off of other birds. They can take them in the air and everything else. 
And so I figured that's exactly what she had. And, you know, for the most part, anybody that could see one of those things had a real treat on their hands. But here was a lady that was having a serious problem with them. She really loved her birds. She had a uh, uh, bird feeder out there, and she would watch this Merlin come in and just clobber those birds and take one off for dinner. And uh, she wanted something done about it. Well, not sure exactly what you can do about that other than take the bird feeder down for a while. But uh, that's an interesting, I've never forgotten that and, mm-hmm. and how you know, that was viewed and, and how the uh, the concern was there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we talked about, you know, the swans. We talked about um, the turkeys. And, of course, the eagle restoration also is a, is a huge one that, uh, that, that we've seen for quite some time now. Um, but um, are there any, you know, things that were vastly important that just weren't as glamorous that, that – you and I, that I don't see that the normal human doesn't see, but but you guys needed to work on and solve that that you can think of. It's a good question. Um, it take me a little while to think about that. Uh, I'm try- there probably were some things that maybe we had a little bit more higher prior- priority on that just didn't seem to work out so well. Um, you know, we have some high priority things right now that are absolutely taking all of our time for the most part, CWD, yes, especially in Beltrami County now. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, um, ah, Kevin, to think think of something that really didn't work out so good, it, it, it doesn't strike me. I guess you forget those things pretty quick, huh? What? Are, yeah, yeah. What about, <laughs> well, what about things that, that, that did work out, but this is, aren't things that we would notice, but, you know, are kind of like laying the groundwork for, for some of the things that, that we do? Land acquisition is probably one of the big ones, and it's a little bit of controversy with it as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we do have a fairly active land acquisition program going on. Uh, Within the state, we have about 1.3 million acres of wildlife management area. Within this region alone, just the northwest region, we have about 830,000 acres. you know, within that, you have uh, concerns uh, from the county about, you know, um, the acquisition of them by DNR lands. We try to, uh, you know, advise and, and make appropriate payments for what we call PILT payments, payment in lieu of taxes, these type of things. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of controversy, but we, we work in that program to provide a habitat for wildlife and also provide for people to come and enjoy. And, uh, you know, those lands are open to the public every day of the year and and can be accessed for the recreational use of them all land types whether they're parks or forests or recreation areas or scientific natural areas wmas they all have their particular rules and uh, sometimes the rules don't really fit with with local things sometimes they do so uh, that's that's one of those programs i think you don't you don't necessarily hear a lot about but we do try to work pretty pretty consistently within that Within the far northwest, we haven't seen as much acquisition as what you see in the further south, and largely because we have a lot of public land up here, and um, the southern part of the state, not so much. Don Williams, the now-retired Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager, my guest, taking a look back at his career and a look ahead and some of the things that concern him going forward. Obviously, chronic wasting disease is, is a huge deal, as you just mentioned. We've had many conversations about it, one just very recently, and, and I know I'll be talking to Blaine or others about that uh, going forward for quite some time. So uh, putting that one aside, as you look forward uh, and, and, and you look ahead to the future, as you leave the, the DNR and retire, what are some other concerns you have uh, about the future? Think of a few. The very first thing, I think, is our youth. Mm-hmm. Um, Will they have the experience to know and enjoy the outdoors as you and I have had? 
Um, there's a lot of attention that they have in other items. And when it comes to um, some things that can instantly you know, be successful for them, hunting and fishing maybe is not so much like that. It's a learning curve. And then you have to have places to do that with. And, you know, access is an issue. And, and uh, probably one of the bigger issues is, is mentoring. You know, will the parents have the time now to, to, to work with the kids to do that? Or, or parents themselves actually hunting and fishing and pass it on. So it concerns me greatly about our youth. And with with their ability, you know, I guess the example, I think I've used this on the air before. When I was in, the, in Indiana, uh, trapping wasn't something that you just did an awful lot of because you didn't have access to it. That they were The fur-bearing population of things down there wasn't as robust as what it is in Minnesota. Never took it up. But when I was at Thief Lake, uh, after deer season, I began to do a little trapping. And all of a sudden, I had greater appreciation for the, the species I was working with, the, you know, the the muskrat, the mink, you know, the, even the weasels and stuff mm. like that. Um, and also had a greater appreciation for the time frame of winter and the marsh habitat where they were found. If our youth do not take up the banner of using the outdoors, they won't care about it. And it's out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest factor that we have as a natural resource agency and as a state that we get our youth educated in that. That's that's the biggest thing, I think, Kevin. Um, there are issues about funding, you know, hunting and fishing. You know, the typical North American model is the hunter and fisherman pay a fee for licenses. Those fees go to a state department to manage the lands that they have or manage the populations and stuff like that. Um, funding for us is, is uh, becoming an issue. Um, We've seen that in the uh, the uh, closure of some offices that we've had, you know, or the merger of some offices that we've had. Um, so those things are, are actively going on, and again, it's a function of less and less people picking up the rifle or the or the fishing pole uh, to enjoy the sport. Okay, those are the big ones I can think of. Uh, is there anything? Um as far as we've talked a little bit about, you know, changing uh, dynamics uh, of the weather around here. And are there, besides the, the, the ones we've already discussed, any of those types of things out in the field that, that you're looking for, you don't like the trends you're seeing? Well, um, take, for example, the monarch butterfly. Mm-hmm. You know, they're talking about putting that on the endangered species list. That's another one of those who who could have even imagined that ten years ago. Right. So you know some of the some of the things we're seeing with our insect populations are very concerning. Um, if you have fruit trees, you know how often do you see bees in there pollinating them and stuff like that? I've got a small Nanking cherry out in my yard, and uh, you know I've wondered if it, our lack of fruit on it has been because it just isn't a lot of pollinators on it. You know. Um, but um, the insect population is a concern. Obviously, uh, insects can serve as a food source. They definitely serve as a um, pollination source and everything else like that. And, you know, it's um, it's a basically a technology thing that's going on. A lot of it is, is related to farming uh, with neonectinoids and certain uses uh, of those type of chemicals. Um, the um, The knowledge that we're getting like that is um, is great. You know, we didn't used to have the ability to measure certain things, and we now have the ability to measure certain things very well. 
and to understand let's say what the condition of the environment is from mercury or something like that um, we our technology maybe exceeds our knowledge you know to a degree on that so we're still in some of the things like like understanding that phonology and timing is a, a thing that's a little bit of a concern something I really thought about after hearing a few things where at certain times of year certain insects would emerge you know the, the mayflies let's say for mm-hmm. example oftentimes migration of birds or other animals were coordinated with that particular thing with that event of, of happening and if the mayflies are now coming out two weeks earlier and the population that uses them is not ready to migrate yet when they do get here there won't be any food source so there are some things that that are getting kind of out of place um i would say in the environment and there's a, another factor and this is very much um you know my thoughts on this i i have talked to dave rave about this from time to time we both agree that there's something just doesn't quite seem right with uh let's say rough grouse management and and how things are working and you can extrapolate that to a lot of things i read the other day uh, about food sources for bears and it was a comparison of i think the food studies that were done in the 1980s with the current condition of the of the habitat today and from what the conclusion of the article was is that the ability of the environment today to produce the foods that were in abundance back 40 years ago didn't seem to be the same and what was normal back then would be exceptional today. So that tells you something's up. Mm. Now, what it is and what you can do about it, that's a better question. I don't know. Okay. Well, as we wrap it up, uh, you, you, you talked a little bit about uh, uh, your career and, and the people you work with, but a uh, long time in the DNR, your, your overall thoughts about your career in uh, natural resources. I've been a blessed man. It's been... Uh, even from a childhood dream, you know, how, how many people can, can say they really wanted to be a duck biologist and at least stepped into the right field. Um, so I've been really blessed. I feel blessed to have come up to Minnesota uh, to begin to know some of the people up here, to enjoy the natural resources that are, are still good. I've often said that, you know, there are still some e- intact ecosystems in Minnesota that you can enjoy. And in Indiana, not so much. We basically turned that woodland area and prairie area into a farmland community for wildlife, which has its own unique features. But to see an intact ecosystem, how it all fits together, pretty awesome. Yeah. At any rate, um, it's been a good. It's been a very good run for me and my family. Like I say, I appreciate that we've been able to raise a family here, and you know, my kids are Minnesotans. You know, um, uh, I did take them back to Indiana for a turkey hunt when they were in their junior year of, of high school, just so they would know where they came from. But uh, like I say, it's been good to be here. I. I'm excited that the staff we have in our field are still just as dedicated as, as they were. We have many people in upper positions like myself and further up in St. Paul that got their same start in the same way we talk about, and uh, the dedication never left. Uh, for myself, my heart's always been in the field, and uh, it always will be. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's next for John? Well, probably do a little bit of family visiting i got a son out in utah i want to go visit here in probably a month or so and and uh, do a few things with him out there want to take advantage of um, the fall time frame uh, getting ready for hunting season i might be able to do that a little bit more these days Uh, certainly fishing and and uh, spending some time up in the farm uh, just doing some basic things that i used to do in the field 
and get paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's that type of aspect that uh, I still enjoy putting in food plots and and some of these type of things. And then of course you always have that that uh, classic six month of honeydew work. You know. Oh yes. <laughs> so, so I'm sure Deb uh, has a few things for me uh, in mind to do. So, you guys going to be sticking around here for at least a few years? Mm-hmm. I think so. Um, it's going to be a question whether we stay in Bemidji or move back up to Viking, but uh, uh, either way seems good. So, okay. Well, John Williams, it's always been a pleasure having you on the show, and uh, I've learned a lot from you and Henry, and I, I just have always appreciated. Uh, people in the natural resources field, it's not a job. It's it's definitely a passion, and uh, the, it requires a lot of patience, as I've talked about before. When you're when you're putting in these long term plans, and I've always appreciated the uh, straight shooting nature uh, of the people I've interviewed, and yourself included, willing to uh, tell us the truth, warts and all. So I thank you for that, and wish you the best in your retirement. I'm sure we'll see you around. Kevin, I really appreciate being able to have the opportunity to come into the radio station. Visit with you a little bit, talk over the air about some of the things that are important and uh, some of the best interviews I've ever had. Take care, John. Congratulations. Thank you, Kevin. That'll do it for today. I'm Kev Jackson. Thank you for joining us.